I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So the priority is that we need to make cannabis dealing less lucrative. That is the problem at the moment. And it's becoming even more easy to get into since dealing has moved on to social media. Hello and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. This week is the latest instalment in our Liberalism in Europe series, exploring the many different challenges to freedom on the continent. Our topic is the way the UK approaches drugs. Should we legalise them, decriminalise them or keep the status quo? And if we do change things, which substances should be allowed and which would remain prohibited? What have countries that have changed their drug laws experienced and what might the UK learn from them? To answer all these questions, I brought together Lizzie McCulloch from VaultFast, a campaign group calling for reform of drug laws, and Dan Pryor, the head of programmes at the Adam Smith Institute. I began by asking Dan what the distinction is between legalisation and decriminalisation of drugs. The big difference between the two is that whilst decriminalisation removes the criminal penalties associated with drug possession, it does absolutely nothing on the supply side of the market. So it doesn't um, take back control of illegal supply and put it in the hands of regulated businesses. And that's one of the big problems with decriminalisation. And why, although it might be, uh, and in fact, I think it is an improvement on what we have as the status quo, it still doesn't tackle some of the problems around the violence in the illicit market, the lack of regulation around, uh, around products and, and various other issues. I mean, how much confidence? I mean, the Adam Smith Institute is one of the think tanks which tends towards a smaller state. And here, is there a conflict, a slight kind of theoretical conflict there between advocating a policy which actually sort of empowers the state in this area? Well, it depends on how you do it. There's a huge debate that's going on in drug reform circles around the world and also in the UK about what sort of model legal regulation, especially of cannabis, should actually take. And on the one side of things, you've got more of a state control, um, public health focused angle. Um, And on the other side of things, you've got the kind of goals of more free market liberals, which tend to focus on eliminating the criminal market uh, and also providing some level of consumer choice, especially for uh, relatively lower risk illicit drugs like cannabis. So the kind of classic example of where I think the state-led approach can go wrong is Uruguay, um, which was the first country in the world to legalize cannabis earlier this decade. And one of the problems with Uruguay is that it introduced a a whole host of measures in legalization, which are extremely strict uh, regulations on cannabis there. So there was very few vendors that could actually sell cannabis. Uh, It was all grown by the state and and still is um, 
to major- the majority is still grown by the state, I believe. But there's things like price controls in there. So there's a whole host of, of interventions. And the cumulative effect of these has been actually to undermine one of the key goals of legalization, which is to combat the illicit market. Uh, the amount of shortages of cannabis in Uruguay post-legalization that continue to this day um, were caused by some of this state intervention that made it more difficult to, to get enough supply onto the market. So we're very keen that when we advocate for cannabis legalization, uh, especially as we did in our recent paper, The Green Light, that we propose a model which takes account of the fact that too much state control can undermine a lot of the key arguments in favor of legalization. Yeah, I just want to interrogate this a bit more. We talked about cannabis already. I mean, where is there, where does the line come between why you would campaign to legalize one drug and not another? Is it to do with physiological harm? Is it to do with where it's produced? So if we legalized, I don't know, cocaine or something, and it was still illegal to produce it in Bolivia, that's going to create a bit of a problem. Where do you stand on that? Lizzie? Yeah, so the, <coughs> the thing about cannabis is that it is safer than alcohol, and it's safer okay. than tobacco. And so Voltfast is making the case to regulate a drug which is safer than other legal drugs we have out there. And so one, so I think sometimes in this debate there can be this tension at times between uh, people who uh, want to implement a very state-led model. Uh, They're very worried about um, use going up, uh, and they see that as increasing harm. And what we would say is actually, we're very interested in displacement. And if people are using cannabis more, does that mean they're using alcohol less? Mm. And so there, there is, by seeing an increase in use, I see that as a positive thing, because where are we seeing less use in substances? Whereas cocaine can kill you, and it is as can MDMA, and as can many other stimulants. And that's why we can't just rush into it and say, well, let's just treat all drugs the same, because mm-hmm. they are different. And we do need to be more considered and recognise that a different regulatory model would need to be introduced for cocaine on MDMA or speed, but maybe not. And that's something that we need to start a conversation about. So can I perhaps make an analogy about this? And it's, it's related to immigration policy. A lot of free market liberals will... Um, we'll talk about being pro-open borders. But in that particular debate, what that translates into in actual policy terms is gradual reforms um, and gradually moving towards a more liberalised immigration system. And there's a similar thing that I think should be happening when it comes to drug policy reform, is that we have the evidence base for, for legalising and regulating cannabis. It's a very strong evidence base. And we have the general kind of more theoretical arguments as to why that is likely to transfer to to other uh, drugs, although, of course, different drugs should be regulated in, in different ways in, in any sort of legal system. But we still need to move slowly, uh, and we need to move as the evidence comes in, and we need to constantly be taking stock of where the, the kind of evidence comes in as we make policy changes. Uh, and there is kind of, it's not just cannabis where we're seeing reform around the world. I mean, we had the recent decriminalization of magic mushrooms, for example, in Denver, I believe it was. And um, there's a lot of other similar efforts that are going on. Obviously, Portugal, with its full decriminalization of all drugs uh, a fair while ago now, that's by all intents and purposes been a, a huge success in terms of achieving its aim. So there is emerging evidence about other drugs. It's not just cannabis where we have an evidence base. It's just that it needs to be stronger before we talk about um, legal regulation. Where is the kind of climate of public opinion on this in the UK? I mean, how realistic do you think it is to get that we might see some legislative action 
over the next few years? Yeah, so if we're talking about all drugs, there is very low support to legally regulate all drugs in the UK. I think it's something like 12%. Right. If we're talking about cannabis, it's a very different situation. So, um, And we're seeing support increase rapidly month by month. So in May 2018, before the Billy Caldwell campaign and before medical cannabis was legalised, uh, support was pretty equal. So... 43% of the UK supported legalisation and 41% didn't. And that was actually, um, people got quite excited about that because they were saying, oh my God, 2% two, two more people support legalisation than opposed. Wow, we've never had that before. It's always been pretty much equal. Whereas now what we're seeing, so YouGov, one year later, asked the exact same question, um, same polling company, and now it's 53% who support the legalisation of cannabis. So a 10% increase. And that's full legalisation, not decriminalisation. Absolutely that's... not. No, that is full legalisation. Yeah. And and so what we're seeing now is actually 30, I think it said 31% of the UK oppose this policy and the rest don't know. So that's, that's quite a striking figure, I would say. It's interesting to break that down by political party as well, because for mm. the longest mm. the longest time looking into this debate, I was... I was sure that it would be Labour would kind of be fairly pro. The Lib Dems, obviously, with their explicit policy, would be very pro, um, and the Tories would be very anti. But there's been some some recent polling done by the Conservative Drug Policy Reform Group, who looked at the party breakdown and found that actually it's Conservatives are split roughly evenly mm. on this. There's um, support in the 30-35% range, and there's opposition in exactly the same range. Uh, and then there's a lot of don't knows or or undecided in the middle. So the kind of political will behind this, I think, is is starting to get stronger as well. I mean, when I'm having conversations with MPs from, from all parties, but more recently I've been chatting to some Conservative MPs who shall remain nameless for the purposes of this podcast, who are not the sort of people that you'd traditionally associate with cannabis legalisation or supporting it. Uh, and yet, in private conversations, they're more than happy to to discuss that they accept the case for reform, full legalisation. It's just that there hasn't been the cover, the political moment for them to to come out and support this yet. Yeah, it always struck me one of the things about Theresa May is she was really fiercely against this and that perhaps yeah. stopped it in its tracks for a little while, uh, both at the Home Office and then subsequently as Prime Minister, whereas I think I would make no aspersions about Boris Johnson's personal habits, but he doesn't strike me as the kind of person who would be particularly fussed. Do you think that's a fair um, assessment? I think, I think I, yeah. that's perfectly fair characterisation. I mean, and he's been on record in the past supporting cannabis reform. Admittedly, this was a fair while ago. But I think of all the kind of Tory senior figures that would ever come out and say, yes, I'm going to legalise cannabis, Bojo's got to be up there um, as one of them. He is, by all accounts, a liberal on, on many issues, if you look at immigration as well. So the hope is that if there's the political moment and opportunity for it, then we might see some reform coming from the Conservative Party. And I mean, you look at the, the other parties, Labour, for example, have for a while kind of been umming and ahhing about decriminalisation, um, which, although better than the status quo, is, is not what uh, will solve the problems with illicit supply. Uh, and recently they've ended up calling for a Royal Commission on all drugs, which which was cautiously welcomed, I think, by drug policy reform campaigners because on the one hand with a royal commission you've got the opportunity to to kind of have that political cover to make change uh, to make policy change in this area but it takes a long time uh, and more often than not the kind of discourse around it tends to be very much 
public health and decriminalization focused again. So for me, I think the best chance of of getting uh, cannabis legalization through is not through a royal commission, uh, not getting it through in a timely manner as well. It would be policy just put forward by one of the major parties just doing it, basically. But I would say, I think Labour's decision to have a royal commission, I think that was them dipping their toe in the water. I think that Labour have been very silent on drugs, unusually, some would say. And I think that when um, that decision was made at a senior level to endorse the position, I think there might be an expectation that there was going to be an outcry, that the Daily Mail was going to be after them, and no one was that bothered. There was radio silence. Yeah, there was radio silence. I was quite surprised, to be honest. Yeah, and I I think they must have been quite surprised. And so my expectation is that they now see the way is clear to go a bit further. Um, so I think Labour could definitely be legalised cannabis. Um, and I totally agree. I think that not only is cannabis legalisation in, um, in keeping with Boris's values, I also think it's a vote winner for him. Because as we saw gay marriage under Cameron, it was a policy that he endorsed. It, it didn't really have the support of his membership, of his voters really, but it was a way to engage... Yeah. So we could have, uh, yeah. uh, you know, fund the NHS, hang the pedos, legalise weed. <laughs> the ultimate triangulation. Pure yeah. populism party, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's a very strange... I mean, uh, let's talk a bit about what are the demographics. I mean, I would imagine instinctively that people under 30 are overwhelmingly in favour. I mean, is that borne out by yeah, the research? So, so what's really interesting is for the first time, which, again, I referenced that um, YouGov poll where it showed 53% support the legalisation of cannabis. Yes, definitely. In the past, this has been a young person issue where young people want to legalise, older people say, no, we don't want to do that. Now, uh, if you look at every age demographic, apart from people who are over 65, the majority support the legalisation of cannabis. And that's never happened before. What's the over 65 figure now? Uh, equal. Really? Yeah, okay. so it's not even the case yeah. that um, there's majority opposition, it's equal. I suppose now you're getting people in their 60s who grew up in the 60s. Yes. For whom it's pretty much normal. And we've talked a bit earlier on about kind of ways you could do this. Is there a country or a state where you think, right, they've absolutely nailed it? I don't think that there's one particular uh, state or country that you should point to and say, we're going to transplant this model from there to here and not change anything. It's got to be a uniquely British approach. Uh, if you look at somewhere like Canada, for example, issues related to potency were just not an issue. They were not part of the discourse around cannabis legalization at the time last year. And yet for the UK, that seems to be a much more salient issue for people involved, kind of concerns around mental health, um, psychosis, etc. So you have to kind of take account of, of public preferences in the model if you're going to get any sort of buy-in, if you're going to have any sort of success with it. Uh, at the same time, I think that there's there's lessons that we can learn from pretty much everywhere that's legalized, some positive lessons and some negative ones. I mean, Canada's uh, Canada being able to inform users about the kind of strength and potency and the health effects of cannabis um, with every purchase is, I think, a really good thing. Informed consum- consumers is never a bad thing. You get a kind of handout with every cannabis product that you purchase. If you look at some of the U.S. states, what they've done on taxation, I think there's lessons to be learned there as well. Without getting um, too wonky, there's important things related to whether you should tax weight or the value of cannabis. It sounds boring, but if you end up taxing the weight of cannabis, you're incentivizing growers to grow higher strength stuff. That's not necessarily what you want to be doing. Uh, So you should tax the value instead. And also the rates of taxation 
as well are very important. If you look at somewhere like California, which started off initially with very high levels of taxation, it really struggled to make an impact in the on the criminal market. Uh, and they responded to this by reducing the overall rates of taxation. And there, there's various states have diff- taken different approaches, but the general lesson from it seems to be that if you want to be able to have the legal market compete with the very well-established criminal market, you've got to make sure it's competitive on price. You've also got to make sure it's competitive on accessibility as well. So, you know, I grew up near South End, and uh, a lot of my friends at school, they could basically uh, text someone or, you know, send someone a Facebook message and they'd be at their door in 20 minutes with a, a 10 bag of weed. And unless the legal market is able to have some way of competing with that, then again, it's going to be a massive disadvantage. You're not going to displace people from um, the criminal market into regulated markets. So there's, there's a lot of different lessons that we can learn. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Yeah, and I think what I would say is that I totally agree. The... A legal market needs to compete with the illicit market on price, accessibility, and also experience. It needs to be a nice experience for the consumer, for them to want to go to the legal market. However, what I would add is that I think the the UK debate needs to mature in the understanding that introducing a legal regulated market is a process. So Canada legalized um, in October 2018, and then we took... Um, uh, MPs over there um, for a study trip and then brought them back and we invited the BBC to make a documentary about out of the trip. And so when I came back and I was doing um, sort of media interviews on it um, in the summer, uh, the question that I kept getting asked was, but it's a failure, isn't it? Because there's still an illicit market. Um, mm. And what there is not the understanding is that when Canada legalised, I think there was 10% legal sales, 90% illegal. And then it moved to, I think, 30%, and then it moved to 47%. And for me, that's progress. And yes, I think the Canadian government is learning uh, lessons and the province is learning lessons that they need to loosen it up in order for um, licensed producers to operate um, effectively. More um, stores need to be opening up. The price needs to go down. But 
it's a process and it's something that will take time. And I think Connect Canada are very realistic about the fact that it's going to take quite a few years before they can say that they've got a thriving legal cannabis market. Do you envisage it? It seems that in a lot of places it has to be sort of bought or sold in a specific place. Is that the kind of... And why is that particular way of doing things seemingly popular rather than just selling it in the same way as tobacco or alcohol in a supermarket? Or I think there's whatever. an element of wanting staff to have a better familiarity with cannabis, especially considering that, you know, for a long time under prohibition, we've had a huge lack of awareness about the health effects of cannabis, even about the difference between THC and CBD. Um, for the listeners who are unaware, THC is the stuff that gets you high, CBD is the stuff that some evidence suggests protects against uh, psychoactive, some negative psychosis effects. And yeah, in our model, and um, the Adam Smith Institute's model, we do say, well, it should be sold in regulated online outlets, subject to age checks, of course, um, specialized stores and perhaps in some cases your kind of boots or super drug pharmacy stores so having some level of, of staff training um, or or some level of information on a website that is able to inform consumers better now it's possible to kind of in theory go to well you can pop into tesco and you can buy a joint and i mean for me at least and this is where me and lizzie may disagree i'm not sure in an ideal world i think that that might not be the worst option i think that accessibility ultimately cannabis is a fairly low harm consumer product uh it's enjoyable for a lot of people um, people should be able to adults should be able to get it um in those sort of circumstances but again legalization is is a process and that simply doesn't have the political buy-in in the uk i think it's very unlikely to uh, and one of the reasons is that people are concerned that they don't want increased use overall I think that concern is is misplaced, but it's one that that tends to dominate the debate. Yeah, I wanted to yeah kind of pick up on that point. I mean, what evidence is there that legalisation or decriminalisation does it lessen the kind of cachet of, for kids, especially of doing something a bit rebellious and naughty? Does it have any effect on use? So, in the effect it has on use is that the age group where we're going to see an increase in use is people who are over fifty, and so people who are most deterred by our current cannabis laws. So if we, if our policy goal was, God, we, we really need to make sure that the over 55s are not smoking <laughs> cannabis, then we could say we're actually doing an all right job. So nursing it. homes could have a really different vibe. Yeah, it's a better vibe, yeah. arguably. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, so, and so if that was our policy goal, then yeah, maybe prohibitionists could, could make a good case. But our goal should be that it's children who should not be using cannabis. And that's where we don't do a very good job. Right. So we know that from polling that we've done, that children uh, can access cannabis uh, easy than alcohol. Dealers don't ask for ID. Um, they, can just go, they can just go to someone in their school or someone uh, in their community who they can buy it from. And actually, when you legalize, what you do is you regulate. And it means that if you take it out of the illicit market, and again, the priority has to be to shrink that illicit market so young people can't go to those dealers, and you bring it into a regulated setting where young where children can't buy it. And so what they've seen in the US states where they've legalized, there's been a 10% reduction in use among teenagers, whereas in states that haven't legalized, they've seen an increase in use. I wonder what, just slightly play devil's advocate here, I mean, one of the advantages you see of, of doing this is to sort of take money out of the hands of criminals. 
is there any risk that that will just drive them to look elsewhere to increase the market in other illegal drugs? So the priority is that we need to make cannabis dealing less lucrative. That is the problem at the moment. And it's becoming even more easy to get into since dealing has moved on to social media. So that's a report that we did quite recently that demonstrated um, that actually young people increasingly seeing drug adverts on social media. And it's just it's a very easy way for anyone to become a dealer. You buy a bit of extra cannabis and then you just sell it on social media and sell it to your to your network. And also there is a limit of how much. So, so something that people say is, oh, they'll just go on and sell heroin or they'll go on and sell, sell cocaine. There's a limit to how much demand there is for heroin and cocaine. And so, again, that's not potentially a very lucrative area to go into. And also, it's not our job to give um, criminals stuff that they can sell. That is not our goal. Because if it was, what we could say is, actually, cannabis, illicit cannabis is quite harmful. Why don't we make something else illegal that's less harmful? And then actually, maybe we're reducing overall harm. Right. (laughs) I think another point to make on this, because it's, for me, I, I... Don't think that it, it doesn't convince me, but it's one of the stronger arguments against legalization that actually you're going to find the substitution effect where cannabis dealers who, who used to just do a cannabis start dealing cocaine or heroin or, or harder drugs and actually harm goes up. The reason that I'm not convinced by it is it simply isn't borne out if you look at crime statistics post legalization, if you look at the best evidence and studies into uh, the difference pre and post legalization. So even on something like uh, medical marijuana, for example, in the US, there's a good study out a few years ago that looked at the um, violent crime rates in US states that bordered Mexico um, once they'd legalized medical cannabis and found a fairly significant reduction the closer they were to the border as well. In areas closest to the border, uh, there was a significant reduction in violent crime. And the explanation that the authors gave for this is fairly simple. They were undermining the profits of the cartels through legalization. Now, if the kind of substitution effect was was strong, then we'd expect actually, well, these cartels might move away from cannabis and simply all of that um, effort and resources goes into other drugs. But the fact that there was a reduction in crime suggests that's not the case and that actually the undermining of criminal profits um, outweighs any sort of substitution that we might have. And also just to add, it is important to involve people who participated in the illicit market in the legal market. So I think there's a strong agreement in North America that people who've been criminalised for possession of cannabis should be pardoned or expunged and allowed to uh, participate by getting a license in the legal market. There is more of a debate um, in North America around whether people who were dealing in the legal market should be able to have a license. And that's something that we need to have more of a conversation about in the UK. Uh, yeah, and it's something they're grappling with over there. From a personal basis, I'm I'm very pro that. You've got this group of people who are extremely entrepreneurial, shall we say, <laughs> um, albeit on the wrong side of the law, and whose human capital could make for a far more effective and, and successful legal cannabis industry if they were able to enter it. And I guess it depends on your kind of wider views of criminal justice as to whether you know, this is more about punishment, even though that punishment will have been removed in a legalized system, uh, or whether it's more about actually encouraging people to get involved in the job market. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that it's also important to recognize that dealers are very different. There, there are different types of dealers. You've got people sort of at the top who are involved in serious organized crime and human trafficking, 
And then you've got people who, again, are more entrepreneurs and just buy more weed than they need and sell it to their network. And that's very different. It's, and I- it's, it's a good cut off that as well. If, if you want to not allow the kind of high level organized crime to transfer into the legal market, then you just say, well, if it's purely a cannabis supply offense, if there's nothing else going on, then that's the way to, to do it. And that would be okay. If you've been involved in any other sort of organized crime, which should be frowned upon, um, then no, sorry. So I mean, we've, we've focused understandably a lot on cannabis um, so far, but you mentioned earlier, Lizzie, Portugal, which has decriminalized all drugs. I mean, what's their experience been and what can we learn on both sides there? Uh, so the experience has been that um, in, in a public health sense, drug-related harm went down. So the reason why um, Portugal decriminalized all drugs was because in the late 90s, they had the highest HIV rate in Europe and very high um, drug-related deaths. And so it was considered to be a public health emergency. They thought, okay, we just need to take a new approach with this. And what they did was they said, let's treat um, problematic drug use as a health issue, not as a criminal justice issue. And by decriminalizing, we're removing barriers that are obstructing people from accessing help and support. There's no statistically significant evidence that shows there's been an increase in use uh, from decriminalizing drugs. Okay, so it's been sort of broadly positive, but yes, not, but as as Dan said, not a miracle cure for it. No, no, because at, at the end of the day, there's still a thriving illicit market, and something the work that Voltfast does is to try and communicate to a UK audience that illicit markets are not acceptable and that we shouldn't say oh we're always going to have an illicit market that they're not really that bad they actually suit people in a lot of ways so it's okay for them to exist and we say that's that's not okay yeah I feel like I knocked decriminalization a little too much earlier in the recording um I do think that I mean the evidence from Portugal is is very clear in a significant reduction in overdose deaths a significant reduction in HIV and other STI prevalence rates it's been a massive success on public health grounds although there is this I I guess I I struggle to to come to terms with the data on there not being an increase in in overall use i mean there there's certainly be a reduction in problem use yeah. um but again you know our personal experience is no substitute for hard data but whenever i've been to to lisbon um i've always found the kind of the visibility of drugs it seems to be much higher um it you know just people openly dealing on the streets in broad daylight and things like this now a lot of people's concerns um i i don't necessarily share them i don't really care very much either way but a lot of people's concerns in the uk about legalization or any sort of drug reform is the idea of it being more visible on the streets so people smoking cannabis on the streets or people dealing cannabis in broad daylight and things like that so that's that's maybe one of the concerns that that i would have with any sort of decriminalization is that actually it would it would poison the well against other drug reform because people would get sick to death of seeing people you know, openly dealing on the streets, which they do already, to be fair. Um, but that's one of the worries and why I think politically speaking, as well as um, just in policy terms, it's better to legalise. Yeah, because it's interesting. So a, a cri- not a criticism, but something that um, politicians might say about the UK is that we have de facto decriminalisation, which isn't true because actually um, there's just a lot of 
there's a postcode lottery in terms of where right. you're going to get criminalised for cannabis possession, where you're not. <clears throat> but if you look at the um, uh, constabularies where you've seen a dec- decline in the criminalisation of possession offences, chances are you also see a decline in the criminalisation of supply offences. And I think it's quite... And yeah, and I think, um, as, as Dan said, if police stop criminalising possession, it also just sort of means that dealing on the street is also sort of permitted in, in a sense. I think overall drugs as a whole become a bit deprioritized. Yeah. I mean, we did have a literal um, postcode lottery when in Brixton about 15 mm. years ago. Depenalization yes. literally yeah. decided they weren't going to bother yes. going after it. I mean, if you've ever come out of Brixton Tube, you'll know that that kind of remains the case. Yeah, I, I live in Camberwell and I know the <laughs> Right, <thing. laughs> yeah. I mean, just returning to the kind of broader European theme, I mean, this, um, this podcast, I should add, is part of a series that we're doing in CapEx about illiberalism in Europe. I mean, where do you think the continent as a whole is? Is there a kind of dividing line between perhaps more authoritarian countries and their attitude to this? I mean, um, where do you see that kind of divide? I, I can see Europe moving a lot quicker than North America has mm. uh, in terms of the because dis- uh, if we go back to cannabis, what typically happens is um, your a country will do um, legalize medical cannabis, and then maybe a few years will go by. There will have to be an established um, sort of patient population. They'll have to that will be accessing medical cannabis, and that is the way that people in North America see the way that legalization will happen in Europe. But actually, that doesn't seem to be the case. So Luxembourg um, legalized medical cannabis in June 2018, a very recent decision. And now they've just said, actually, we're going to go ahead and legalize recreational. There hasn't been that need to wait until there's been this patient population. It feels like what might happen in Europe is we just crack on with it because we're seeing all this emerging evidence from North America. We're seeing how much for success has been. So there's a feeling of, do we have to wait? But will that be a Western European phenomenon, do you think? Yeah, I mean, oh. that's the way it's looking yeah. at this point. I think if we, if we look at the countries where there's most um, sort of discussions and appetite for reform, it does seem to be more Western Europe. Yeah, I wouldn't call it an Iron Curtain, but it's certainly, you know, a, d- a divide... Um, between east and west on this so if you look at you know portugal although they they haven't legalized cannabis there was recent efforts to a couple of years ago i think to actually legalize and build on their decriminalization in spain there's a lot of movements towards um towards legalization and they already have kind of a fairly liberal system there, looking at uh, cannabis social clubs and things like that uh France, uh, the Netherlands, especially. I mean, they've they've had this this toleration policy where people aren't prosecuted uh, for growing or selling or possessing. But even that, they've recently started trials and experiments with uh, with legal and regulated supply. Whereas in the past that wasn't the case. Uh, and then of course, yeah, Luxembourg, which has just come out of the woodwork, and I think very few people were were following it before they made the announcement, to be honest. It was yeah. just a, a, a real shock to everyone. They're aiming to get that done by 2021. Um, and then further afield, of course, we've got New Zealand as well. They're holding a referendum on it, um, which should take place in the last few months of 2020. So there's there's definitely worldwide momentum. And what do you think the kind of, um, just to finish, what do you think the kind of economic impact would be? You talk about the tax take and things, but... You know, is there a potential for a, if you like, green industrial revolution? 
<laughs> yeah. I, th- I think we shouldn't get too focused on tax revenue. Um, there's, it seems to be that before a country legalised, that seemed to be the the, the, the boon to, to do it. It's we can get one billion in, in taxation. Yes, we will get more taxes from legalising, but if we f- focus on that as an achievement, what that might mean is that we're not able to make it price competitive and we tax it too highly, and it means it doesn't compete with the illicit market. And for me, there's no point legalising cannabis if we're still going to have an illicit mm. market. That should be our priority to eliminate that. So the taxing is a pleasant side effect yes. rather than the main what, reason. What I'd we, say it's an unpleasant side effect. <laughs> <myself. Right. laughs> I think what we need to focus on is the fact that we will uh, be embracing a new industry. So when when we were organising Strip and Canada, we, we um, hired someone on the ground to help us with it, and she was saying that actually... Since legalisation, what Canadians have realised is that is how um, what's the word? I think that the, the population has really valued the the emergence of this industry. So this mayor from uh, this town called Smithfields, who in the early two thousands, most of its I think most of its jobs came from the Hershey factory, which shut down uh, after the recession, and the town lost two thirds of its jobs, and then with that. Loads of problems sort of came to the town. There was problems with addiction um, there. And then uh, I think in 2014-15, they were approached by um, a cannabis company who said, can we come in and basically set up this um, cultivation site? We want to bring a whole range of different jobs here. And he said they were desperate. And so they said, okay, fine, well, well you can come in. And it's completely turned the town around. Yeah. They and should probably reopen the Hershey's factory Sorry. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a distributional impact as well when it comes to jobs in the cannabis industry. So a lot of different US states and Canada as well have experimented with with equity programs. So the idea of trying to um, involve communities that were disproportionately impacted by criminalization more in the legal regulated market. Um, but I was speaking to um, to one of the cannabis regulators in Massachusetts a few weeks ago um and she comes from the kind of the the left of politics more generally um but she really surprised me she made the point that well we've got all these different states trying equity programs but actually the ones uh, like oklahoma which have fairly fairly lax uh, licensing restrictions uh, they're actually more successful just letting people enter the market easier uh, than these equity programs so it has the potential to to really deliver a positive outcome for for low income communities and and people of color as well. All right. Well, on that very positive note, I'll uh, bid you both well. Thank you very much, and uh, stay tuned for the next episode of Free Exchange. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.